before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. The All-Star has passed. It is officially basketball season, and we are headed to the home stretch of both the college and pro hoops regular seasons. BetOnline is the number one place to stop for all the odds, totals, and player performance props. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up and get a 50% welcome bonus when you use the promo code BLEAV. B-L-E-A-V. Bet online, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it's a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is February 23rd, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in however and whenever you may be listening. We are 868 episodes strong here on the Take It Easy podcast. We've got a good one today with Joe Camo returning to the show. He was with us back in October talking about John Gruden and talking about systemic racism in the NFL and talking about the NFL's response to Colin Kaepernick and excommunicating him from the sport and all of those things as a sociology professor at Georgia Southern or Georgia State. I think Georgia Southern University, but he's a sociology professor. He also does a YouTube talking about the Arizona Cardinals. Him and Walter Mitchell do great content, both with the Red Rain podcast and on Joe's YouTube, The Cardinal Rule, which you can check out with the link in the description to this episode. Y'all know Walter, of course, great friend of the show comes on every couple weeks and we do awesome content incorporating joe into the mix is something i really want to do because well on the red rain podcast we do fun content and joe is really really smart and really really good at this race and ethnicity of sociology of race and ethnicity stuff which plays into a conversation about brian flores and about white power in the nfl and the pittsburgh steelers and the compensation rules in the nfl and all kinds of great stuff here today that we will get to here on the podcast without further ado because this is a two-hour long podcast i try to break the rule i did the best i could to avoid breaking my own rule of never make a podcast longer than two hours and we crammed every nook cranny and question into these wonderful two hours here today for your enjoyment on this walter mitchell power hour plus joe camo power hour that equals two power hours thanks for for conversing with joe and myself do you have anything in particular well i'm currently writing an article about um steve wilkes and how i continue to realize how what a what a raw deal he got with the Cardinals. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, particularly in light of, you know, being a successor to Bruce Arians, who now is pretty much in the news because uh, it looks like not only did Arians alienate Antonio Brown, but he may have also alienated uh, Tom Brady. Mm-hmm. And that part's interesting because it reminds me of the fact that Arians didn't want uh, Arians didn't want to bring in Antonio Brown in the first place. That was ultimately a right. right. A t- Tom Brady call and Correct. the front office making the call over the head coach. And yes. it does seem like in the end that Bruce Arians did alienate Antonio Brown, certainly within that team. And I don't know what's true and what's not about the Tom Brady stuff, but it seems like there was obviously some sort of power dynamic that they had to try and figure out over the last two years that right was different than anything Bruce Arians had done his entire career. Well, not only did, uh, you know, the timing of that bizarre incident and the handling of it, um, with Brown, um, was so telling because I mean, that was the beginning of the end. I mean, first of all, taking Brown off the roster when you've already lost, um, you know, um, Chris Godwin and other receivers were banged up and hurt and, you know, um, <laughs> um, that in itself handicapped the Bucks heading into the playoffs and the trauma of that. It was just, it could have been avoided um, somehow and reconciled perhaps or you know I mean it's just it's mind-boggling well you Um, can also combine it with the fact that Bruce Arians got fined fifty thousand dollars for grabbing a player by the helmet and you can throw in the way that the season ended for them and everyone kind of pointing fingers and Tom Brady walking away, but everyone in the back of their mind assuming that he's trying to leverage his way out of Tampa, but I don't think that's actually the case. All of it seems like there there were some power dynamics behind the scenes that kind of butted heads as Tom Brady tried to essentially run an organization and flex his power. It didn't necessarily jibe with the way Bruce Arians has coached for 30-plus years. Well, the scuttlebutt around here is that um, is that Brady was – the one anecdote that's been floating around was that, that down the stretch uh, in the mornings when Arians was rehabbing his Achilles injury – um, have you heard this? That I knew Bruce Arians tore his Achilles or injured his Achilles and was still coaching through it. I do remember right. That. Well, in the mornings, he'd be with the training staff, uh, doing his rehab on the Achilles. And meanwhile, in the QB room, Byron Leftwich and Tom Brady were making the weekly game plans. And that the scuttlebutt was the rumor is that Brady, um, that you know, like an hour later, um, Arians would arrive and 
take a red pen to so many of the things that that the brainstorming that uh, and game planning that Brady and Leftwich were doing, and we're was crossing out a lot of things, saying, no, it's not going to work, and that's not going to work. And, um, and they were feeling especially frustrated by that, apparently. Um, and, uh, you know, so, I mean, I, I don't know if that's true or not, but it doesn't sound made up to me. Um, and no, it's, the, it seems oddly specific, for sure. And right. Uh, this and, is probably part of how this all falls apart. Yeah, and, and I, I think that um, one of the telling things is uh, the the you know the rumors are could be legit that Brady is waiting patiently to for the day when the Bucks have made a decision on their new quarterback, so that it's feasibly impossible for them to welcome him back um, so that he can then play for the 49ers, his hometown. I've, I've heard the rumors around that. I choose not to believe them, but I'm also the person who said Tom Brady, there was no chance he was going to retire about a week before he decided to retire. <laughs> I, yeah. I just, you know, his, historically, I just assumed that Tom Brady is going to play football. And I, at this point, I assume if he's going to go through the whole retirement tour that, or not retirement tour, the retirement announcement, I assume that this is going to be it for good for Tom Brady. But I he only has one year with Tampa Bay where he's like officially under contract. So right. that was his cap relief for them after winning the Super Bowl instead of doing the one year to year thing. So, right. I don't know. Tampa Bay doesn't strike me as a franchise that is headed in the greatest direction at this point just because right. they went so all in on the past couple of years. Yeah. And, I, I just don't know who they get at this point. I don't know what they do to try and turn the ship around because there's not a huge plethora of options available for them. Right. They've maxed out most of, I mean, Tom Brady's retirement will give them some relief, but they've maxed out most of their available cap space. Mm. Chris Godwin's going to head out. And I just, it's it seems like everything is moving in the direction of someone who went all in to try and win in the short term, which is fine for them. Like it, it delivered right. them a championship. It just, I just don't know what to do with them because I hadn't even considered the reality of Tom Brady leaving. I know. I don't know. I think it's, it's fascinating. It wouldn't surprise me if, Knowing Brady, that he was got a plan B in mind. Does he have to? <laughs> That's what my mind is saying. Does he have to have a plan B at this point? Can he just walk away at 45 years old and go be a business mogul and make content and do all that stuff, you know, does, does he always come back to football, which historically, I guess the answer is yes, but 
you know, I don't know. Maybe maybe this time it's different. I think the opportunity, I mean, he grew up such a 49ers fan, and his idol was Joe Montana. I think that if the opportunity presented itself for him to um, play at San Francisco for a year, especially seeing as they want to move on from Jimmy G, and um, there's speculation as to how ready Trey Lance is, and they feel like they have a a good enough team to win the Super Bowl in a division that's, you know, got the Rams, Cardinals, and Seahawks in it. Um, I think that, uh, I mean, connecting those dots, I think that might be really attractive to him. Um, I think it'd be really attractive to anyone, which is why I said Aaron Rodgers should try and find his way to San Francisco because they essentially have built the best roster in the NFL without a quarterback since like the Seattle Seahawks of 10 years ago or eight years ago. Like the 49ers have, I think in the last two years, eight all pro players. And they also just gave away DeForest Buckner for nothing. Like they essentially just gave the ninth one away and they've just been so good at picking players over the past couple of years, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Well, they got a first-round pick for Buckner, right? They did. It was Javon Kinlaw, and that's you know kind of worked out all right. But Javon Kinlaw kind of got moved to the bench towards the end of the season. He only played about forty to fifty percent of the snaps, so it's it's worked out okay. They just didn't turn it into anything, you know, with actual results. Mm-hmm. I suppose. Well, by the way, Joseph's having issues getting in on the email, so that's why there's a little delay here. Okay. Well, you also um, have to consider yeah. the cap space they saved. Mm-hmm. Which is difficult because they gave it to Eric Armstead. Hey, Joe, can you hear us? So what happened was your email went into my spam folder for some reason on Gmail, which it didn't in the past, which is weird. So uh, I set it to not be spam, so... I have no idea why you did that. So good to know. Okay, <laughs> it, it's been three months, but eventually we got it together. Yes. Um, we we were talking about um, the Bruce Arians situation <laughs> with the Buccaneers before you hopped on here, which leads into something Walter found interesting, which is Steve Wilkes being the fall guy to clean up the mess after Bruce Arians left. But specifically with Tampa, it seems like there was some stuff falling apart behind the scenes with Bruce Arians. I've just heard whispers of that. What I mean, what's what's what all you hearing? Well, we connected the dots with the Tom Brady stuff and how everything ended with Antonio Brown and uh, Bruce Arians getting fifty thousand dollar fine for grabbing a player's helmet and you know changing offensive game plans that Leftwich and Brady had worked on and little things like that that seemed like didn't necessarily have the greatest working relationship at the end. Mm. Yeah. And what one anonymous player telling, uh, who was it? Adam Schefter that, that much of the season was a shit show, um, with Arians and, um, you know, the way he handled it, Antonio Brown situation. Um, he could have deescalated that. I mean, I think it, handicapped the team not to have Brown 
um, with Godwin out and other injuries in that offense with Fournette on the sideline. You know, uh, I think it was the beginning of the end, uh, the the Brown incident, because it was traumatic and, you know, it just cast sort of a shadow on their whole chances. And, you know, it didn't surprise me that they lost in the playoffs. Um, you know, it doesn't surprise me either that this came back on Aaron's because he can't help himself. I mean, he's, he is who he is. He's volatile. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, what have you done for me lately? And his style and all that. You know, for some people it really works. And, uh, but I think it's very possible that he alienated not only Antonio Brown, but Tom Brady and others um, during this season. Plus, he smacked a player in the helmet, um, got $50,000 fine for that. Um, yeah, he's... The Woody Hayes of NFL coaches. <laughs> At that's least he's closer you know, to a caveman. <laughs> yeah, that, that's interesting stuff. Are we gonna? Is that? Are we gonna want to talk about that uh, today? And or yeah. what are? I'm, so this kind of led into something because Walter brought up originally that he was talking about um, Steve Wilkes and how the Cardinals kind of did him in dirty the way that a lot of blackhead coaches get done dirty in the NFL because when they do get jobs, it's the jobs that literally no one wants as the Houston mm -hmm. Texans have now hired three consecutive blackhead coaches in the span of less than, I think, 18 months at this point to try and clean up their mess. So that was kind mm -hmm. of just how we started diving into that conversation of we know the NFL doesn't have good hiring practices when it comes to being a closed door industry. And also when they do give opportunities to say Brian Flores, Hugh Jackson, Romeo Cornell, David Cully, Lovey Smith, Steve Wilkes, even to a certain extent, Byron Leftwich in Tampa, they are the worst of the worst jobs that come available in the last 10 years of the NFL. Right. And I did a study on this and went back and what's extraordinary to me is that, uh, totaled up all the records of black head coaches in the NFL, it's above 500. So they're coming into you know, these situations and doing bleak well. <laughs> situations. And so many of them have actually done well. I mean, the Jim Caldwell debacle in, in Detroit is one clear example, you know, uh, even Tony Dungy's saga, at Tampa Bay and, you know, other there's there's just a whole bunch of evidence to suggest that you know, these coaches were were very competent and actually did better than most might imagine, and yet they're still being viewed as uh, second rate um, and in some cases unhirable um, and unthinkable. Um, especially now in this day and age where the young white mastermind X and O head coach is now thoroughly in vogue. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's kind of this perception narrative sort of a thing, you know, I mean, and I'm going to draw a comparison. I mean, there's a comparison to some of the historical, uh, the racialized narratives about white quarterbacks, right. Versus black quarterbacks, right. The, I, the stereotypes of, you know, <clears throat> that there are certain types of quarterbacks and that when you think of a quarter, the stereotype or the narrative of a quarterback who diagnoses things at the line of scrimmage and as a mastermind as a chess player when everyone else is playing checkers you know that that kind of stereotype is largely associated or affiliated with white quarterbacks right and then the the stereotype associated with black quarterbacks are are these profound athletes who do just enough to pass and you know and obviously that, that there's a lot of problematic aspects of that well similarly it seems like the narrative the of you know the the impression of of coaches, the the Wonder Boy head coach, the the, the you know the Sean McVay, uh, you know uh, Kyle Shanahan Wonder Boy is stereotypically a white, you know, uh, sort of uh, you know uh, coach is what's typically associated with that. And you know, I mean, Byron Leftwich is a former quarterback who is an offensive coach. Who, if you look at his pedigree, you know he he's coaching under Bruce Arians, kind of come up under him. Uh, worked with, uh, you know, Tom Brady, the, the quarterback that everyone calls the GOAT. So, you know, it would stand a reason that you'd think he would be labeled in a similar way as the, uh, you know, the the Wonder Boy, you know, offensive, you know, up and coming. And maybe a few people looked at him that way, but um, you saw that much more of that narrative <laughs> with, you know, other coaches, you know, Um so there, I think there's something to that, that even, you know, how the coaches are perceived um, and, and what everyone is quote unquote looking for is that next great offensive mind. But um, it feels like some of the, the coaches of color who based on objectively speaking, their, their trajectory and their pedigree should and could be grouped in that are not thought of in that light for some reason. Yeah. And there's uh I wrote in a recent article that whenever the predominantly white color commentators and broadcasters on the networks, I mean, really, um, you know, certainly all the highlighted ones, the main uh, ticket on each network, the only black man um, is Lewis Riddick. Um, so in their white quarterbacks, Aikman and Romo and, you Not know. just white quarterbacks, white Dallas Cowboy quarterbacks. And when you can't find white Dallas Cowboy quarterbacks, you give Jason Witten the job, even when, though he was the worst broadcaster I've ever heard. Right, and Greg Olson comes to mind as well. And so, but what you have, I mean, when, whenever the, the Fox or NBC or um, ESPN um, crews or the, the announcing crews use the term brain trust, they're not panning to black coaches. Mm. You always see, you know, like a McVeigh or a Shanahan or, um, you know, uh, uh, even an Arians or, um, you know, some of the more established head coaches is like the, being the brain trust. Um, and I think that's an unfortunate, uh, you know, stereotype. Um, and, you know, I, I mean... I thought Joseph made a great point about how that extends to black quarterbacks too, is that, 
you don't see them pictured when they talk about brain trust. Whereas you do with, you know, you even saw it with Joe Burrow this year and the phenomenal um, season that he had um, being able to withstand the pressure of playing behind a weak offensive line and still delivering in spades. Um, you know, these kind of uh, stereotypes are being per perpetuated and, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that uh, it's come to this point and um, it's unfortunate too, who's been the victim of these kind of stereotypes <laughs> and uh, the whole Brian Flores thing. And I think it's awesome that the Steelers hired him. I mean, who's the man in that room, but Mike Tomlin, I mean, to hire, you know, to hire a guy because you want to win and the most That's, qualified, yeah. I mean, he's over Brian Flores is way overqualified for being mm -hmm. a defensive, you know, assistant. Um, but I think it's just awesome and, and symbolic too, because of the Rooney rule that Flores has landed back on his feet in Pittsburgh and you know, other head coaches might've felt threatened by uh, Flores as, you know, a potential in-house successor. Um, you know, I was privately hoping the Cardinals would do what the Steelers <laughs> did because we have real, um, put it this way, we've got the Cardinals' uh, defensive coaches have gotten goffed every time um, they play Jared Goff and uh, to the same tune every time. What is he, 5-0? and Actually, yeah. 6-0 and versus uh, Vance Joseph defense. And in all six games, that's including his one Lions game, he was dominant and um, controlled the game. And I mean, Goff, I think, is a pretty solid quarterback, but I don't think he's one of the elites. But if you can't defend Jared Goff, what does that say about your ability to defend? And, you know, he plays with such great confidence against the Cardinals because he knows – he knows how to beat their soft zones. He knows how to beat their pressures. And, um, you know, he basically plays his most confident football against the Cardinals. But, you know, were the Cardinals going to bring in a defensive assistant like a Brian Flores? Um, no. I mean, and that's, you know, it goes back to Bruce Arians and his cronyism when uh, Todd Bowles left was uh, with, with great – you know, uh, defensive coordinators available, um, guys with Super Bowl experience like Wade Phillips, like Dick LeBeau, like Jim Schwartz. Um, Garians plucks uh, James Betcher as uh, his DC. Um, and in a season that's called All or Nothing, um, <laughs> which is just so bizarre to me. And I've always blamed Steve Kime for that. I mean, someone had to be the smart guy in the room and say, hey, wait a minute. You know, how can we replace Todd Bowles with a complete novice, someone who's never called a defense in a game before? And um, it's not a knock necessarily on Betcher. I mean, he probably did as well as he could. But when you're a novice, you know, there's a learning curve. It doesn't – things don't – you know, happen for you overnight. And um, well, case in point there, the Steelers just hired Terrell Austin as a first time defensive coordinator and then hired Brian Flores 
as a bridge gap within there. Again, Flores being overqualified for that job as a way to sure. bridge their new defense. Now, sure. let, let me jump in here and just as a counterpoint, and I know, listen, there. I think there's some things that Bruce Aarons rightly deserves to be critiqued on. But I, I think in terms of his hiring and for assistance, I think he deserves a little bit of defense or even praise because in some ways he's been progressive. Obviously, you know, Jen Welcher, the, the coaching, you know, uh, she was kind of a coaching intern, but, you know, that was very progressive to, to you know, uh, you know right. uh, create an opportunity for a, a woman. And even if you look at Brian Leftwich, yes, he's a former quarterback, but you know, he first got a job actually with the Cardinals under Arians, and he wasn't a terribly experienced coach. And, you know, Arians really helped kind of bring him along to bring him to the point where he was, you know, a legitimate head coaching candidate, you know, so we're, we're talking about, you know, coaches of color and, you know, and certainly uh, when, when the Cardinals hired Arians and you'll probably remember this, you know, uh, Walter, but like a lot of people wanted the Cardinals to keep uh, their previous defensive coordinator was Ray. Oh, I forget his name. Ray. Sorry. Yeah. Ray Ray Horton. Horton. He was a defensive coordinator at Wizenhunt who did pretty well. And there were a lot of fans who like, Hey, keep him. And, you know, he brought in his guy, but his guy, you know, is, is a coach of color. So like Arian's, for whatever we want to talk about him being loyal to his guys or cronyism or bringing in his guys, um, he, you know, it does not seem to be a, you know, all white good old boy kind of network sort of, you know, he brings in and promotes, you know, diverse coaches. So I think he deserves certainly some, some credit for, for, you know, his work in that regard. Yeah, it doesn't look like the Nick Sirianni coaching staff where it's just a blanket of white guys at every position. (laughs) Right. Right. But if you notice, and I, I, you know, I want to be too, too critical. I mean, Bruce Arians did a lot of good things for the Cardinals. And I think in the end of the, at the end of the day, cronyism, not only with Betcher, but with Amos Jones, I mean, there were, clear weaknesses on that coaching staff um, were uh, hindering the Cardinals' ability to get to that next level. Um, And it would blow up in their faces. I mean, in that uh, Carolina NFC Championship game, you know, the the, uh, acrimony on the sidelines, uh, the meltdown of all the defensive players and the fallout afterwards, as was explained by um, Lamar Woodley, um, and the disconnect that the defensive players felt with Betcher and the the uh, um, game plan he tried to put in, uh, like that's one novice mistake people make is you know, guys that haven't done it before is before a big game putting in a new new defense and a new strategy that you haven't run all year. Um, that and on top of which, uh, you know, Patrick Peterson's muffed fumble, I mean muffed uh, punt was a huge turning point. And so special teams, again, kind of um, coming back to bite the Cardinals in the butt. Um, so it was a combination of those two things. And, of course, Carson Palmer was um, was really off that day, which hurt, too, uh, you know, the turnovers. And, but, you know, so all three phases really took a beating in that, in that situation. Um, but, you know, what's interesting to me about Arians is that his 
his assistant coaches are talented. And you're absolutely right, Joseph. You know, he brought along Byron Leftwich. But personality-wise, all those coaches are not alphas like Arians himself. Um, I think Arians prides himself on being the true alpha in the room. Um, you know, in in terms of style, they're vastly different. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Todd Bowles is taciturn and quiet, but brilliant in his own ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so is Byron Leftwich. I mean, they're not like... They're not like Brian Flores, put it that way. Um, Brian Flores is, 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 an, is a true alpha. And, well, um, I wanted to circle back around to the Brian Flores point before we got too far off of it, because I had argued that I, I wanted to be careful with how I did it, because it is important that he did get a job. But in my mind, I looked at him filing the lawsuit as a commendable point that in an ideal world would get him jobs regardless like i would look at that and say that's a great leader type move regardless of whether he's the perfect you know uh messenger for the message or not right it's still something that would grant him another job and the steelers were the franchise that put their wrapped their arms around him essentially and said we are going to protect you in this respect but what was disappointing to me is we already knew the Steelers were that team. The Steelers are the franchise of the right. Rooneys. They've right. been the one franchise that in this sea of white men protecting white power have been the team that empowers people who don't look, act, and think like the Rooneys. And right. so, yes, it's good that Flores got it, but in my mind it was so clear that <laughs> if Brian Flores doesn't get any job, he's clearly being exiled from the league and therefore, we're not looking at any progress. You can just scapegoat Brian Flores and have him walk, you know, make him go away the same way you made Colin Kaepernick go away or Eric Reed or John Gruden go away. It's just, I would have liked to have seen a different white owner wrap their arms around him and say, we're going to protect this person. And yeah. what they did was commendable. Because yeah. for 20, 30 years, we've seen the Steelers be that team that does that every single time there's a race issue in the NFL. Right. To to be clear, he was underhired, right? He, um, yes. I mean, when he was fired from Miami, the, 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 uh, you know, the rumbling from around the league was what, right? Why did they fire him? He could have had the Houston Texans job. Had he not filed, had he wanted the Houston Texans job, Mm because the Houston Texans job is the worst in the NFL. Right. But, had he wanted that job and not filed the lawsuit, he could have had that job because it was him and Josh McCown and the Texans were not going to be allowed by the NFL to hire Josh McCown. I mean, I know we talked about some version of this last time we had this, uh, this type of conversation that, you know, the league is very much beholden to public opinion and PR. It's, it's, it's a business and it is a business. It's a, you know, it's, it's a mega business. It's, uh, and they, they, you know, they try to protect the shield, and protecting the shield it involves protecting the big business interests of the shield. And you know, owners want to have both worlds. They want to, um, you know, do their, you know, kind of salute to the troops and the service persons, and pander and cater to the the more kind of conservative elements of their fan base. And then they also want to have their social justice campaigns and pander to the more progressive side. But when it comes down to it. When when the league finds itself in the midst of a storm in terms of a very volatile, 
and current issue that is polarizing, like they're going to, they're going to, they're not going to take a risk on behalf of Colin Kaepernick, Brian Flores, right? Team owners aren't going to bring in someone who is currently polarizing. Now that, you know, now that we are uh, a year, two years past the, initial wave of you know the george floyd and the very you know the very you know the the black lives matter kind of uh you know hitting its crescendo you know now the league is taking a very milquetoast cautious social justice as this broad stroke approach um but right now while brian Forrest has an active uh you know lawsuit and while some folks who are regressive in their thinking about this matter have him as their bad guy. How could he say racism is a thing that's baloney? You know, all that kind of backlash that folks are thinking. Most teams aren't going to touch him with a ten foot pole, except for you know the Roonies, um, who have you know a, a a positive history in this regard. You know, better than most teams. So um, it's not surprising, sadly. <laughs> and you know, I know it sounds really cynical, but. Um, you know, the league, te- most teams are going to play it as safe as they can and try to have both, you know, best of both worlds. Yeah. And I think it's just awesome that, you know, a black alpha head head coach is the one who's welcomed uh, another black alpha coach with open arms who's in the midst of this controversy if you want to call that the, the legal aspects of, you know talk about a man who's comfortable in his own skin um, and uh, wants to win and wants to do what's best for his football team which um, is the and, funny part of all of this is that even for a competitive advantage none of the other 30 teams would touch Brian Flores even if it gave them a huge competitive advantage because like Joseph said he was dramatically underhired given his qualifications as a recent head coach with a near winning record and is a Jaguars field goal away from having the same resume as Ron right. Rivera. You know, well, let me, I just want to throw in there while we're talking about Brian Flores, sorry, real quick is I think there's a really interesting for the, the, the kind of the case of, you know, what this speaks about some of the kind of double standards is if you contrast him with Adam Gase, because these are both coaches who were fired from Miami at both after three years, right? Uh, Adam Gase had records of 10 and six. So he started out well, then he went to six and 10, seven and nine, he was fired, but then he immediately got a head coaching job with the jets, went seven yeah. and nine, two and 14 and then fired. Yeah. So and Brian also f- accumulated more power with the jets right. in those two years. And Brian Flores, he went five and 11 with, in his first year, which in my, I don't know if he, I recall that Miami team being what at the time I thought was the worst roster I'd ever seen in the NFL when he inherited it. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it was really bad. Went five and 11, then 10 and six, nine and eight, got fired. So he had a better record than Gase when he got fired. Um, but he didn't get a head coaching job. Gase got another head coaching job at the immediate next year after. Anyway. Wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, it's an interesting con- case study. That's a really good point. It's, it's an outstanding point. And um, you know, with the Cardinals, I mean, think that's an interesting scenario with them is that was Brian Flores' game plan against the Cardinals after the bye week last year in 2020 
that turned that that uh, he, the game plan that he put on Kyler Murray in that offense started a trend that the Cardinals could not crack the rest of the year. Um, it was innovative. It was smart. Um, it was very Belichickian, and Belichick even hopped on the same same um, game plan when the when the Cardinals played them uh, the Thanksgiving week weekend um, uh, in New England, uh, and others hopped in. The Shanahan and Robert Saleh um, grabbed onto that model as well, and the Cardinals just never were able to adapt to it. Um, so the Cardinals saw firsthand. I thought. Flores in that game um, did everything perfect as a coach. The timeouts he called, the adjustments he made. I mean, he had two in his second start, which was daunting in itself, um, on the road in Arizona against a team that had been playing pretty well. And with Kyler Murray, I mean, you wouldn't expect Tua to beat Murray. And yet Flores pulls this whole gem of a game off and he takes that team to 10 and 6 plus his team had the best game plan i saw all, all season against the rams and Sean McVay i mean that game plan i think was the beginning and the end for Jared Goff in LA um i watched that whole game and it sat in awe as the dolphins ba- basically took the rams out of every butter bread and butter play that they run and uh, left goff um, trying to beat them um, under duress from the pocket and, you know, they intercepted them and they just dominated that game. They also um, uh, dominated the, um, uh, the only team they lost to in the NFC West was uh, Seattle. When Seattle was undefeated earlier in the season, it was the first NFC West game they played, but all of the three other teams um, Flores came away with victories. He led the team to 10 wins. Unfortunately, it was one game shy of being in a playoff scenario. Uh, that, that was too bad because that team was peaking and might have been, been able to do some damage. But here's the interesting um, series of events as they pertain to the Cardinals. I mean, let's let's face it. What's a better position for Flores right now, a defensive assistant and linebackers coach? in Pittsburgh or defensive coordinator um, for the Cardinals. And here's the interesting and fascinating irony. I think that, that, uh, you know, the Cardinals, I, I've heard rumblings from fairly reliable sources that last year, the Cardinals were interested in a defensive coordinator, couldn't pull it off to replace Vance. Um, This year, look at the curious timing of, of uh, Flores's lawsuit was at the same time that at the end of the season when um, Vance Joseph was going to interview for the Dolphins head coaching job. How ironic, right? That in itself, right? So I'm thinking, you know, on when the Cardinal season ended, you know, I was thinking that next Monday we were going to see a change that, you know, they're going to move on from, from uh, Vance Joseph. But I could see where, you know, now the whole thing with the with the national consciousness of the black coaches getting fired, that they wouldn't want to fire Joseph on the verge of, you know, uh, taking a head coaching interview. That would have been really insensitive and untimely and and t- difficult on Joseph. 
I never thought he would, Joseph was going to be a legitimate candidate there anyway, but because of the, the pool of candidates, but, but then, you know, now in the wake of that, when Joseph returned, I mean, was there a conversation about what would this look like after firing Steve Wilkes in one year and now to turn around with the Flores lawsuit on everyone's mind and let go of, of, um, of uh, Vance Joseph. Um, you know, I mean, raise your hand if you would rather have Vance Joseph as your defensive coordinator than Brian Flores. I mean, I, I don't know of anyone who would say, yeah, I'd rather have Vance. Do you? Uh, it would be an interesting point because regardless, Brian Flores is in a place where he's his lawsuit is essentially working against him in the hiring process with most NFL owners, which ideally should not be the case. It's just the Steelers are the one franchise willing to look beyond that and still, by the way, hire him at a lesser position than where he was at. I only know Vance Joseph myself as the coach who the Broncos quit on at the end of 2017-18. So I think Vance Joseph is the one example I can point to of a blackhead and Anthony Lynn of a blackhead coach that got a legitimate head coaching opportunity in the last 10 years and was just not special. They're not one of the eight coaches that are essentially not fireable because of the success that they've had. But to the point with Flores, I – I was thinking before, and maybe Joe and Walter have answers to this. Who is the second team that ends up protecting the ownership or the ownership group that ends up protecting people the way that we think of the Steelers, or at least in terms of progressive hiring practices and giving up some of their power to people who aren't white straight men. I can't think of the, the second example that we relate to, like we talk about the Steelers. You know, that's a good question. Who, you know, you think about what ownership group would do that. Um, we're, let's see, I, I, I won, and I'm just speaking, part of it is just the demographics of the region and the kind of the sociopolitical nature of the region. I have to wonder if Seattle wouldn't be that. I know we think, oh, well, they've got a white head coach, but, you know, Pete Carroll's been there forever. It's just, right. but like, mm -hmm. so we just haven't seen a different coach there in forever. But when you and think about what's recent turnover of ownership as well, it's the, um, I think the, the spouse of Paul Allen is okay. still owning the team at this point as well. So just when you think about what Seattle, and part of it I think about is you, you know, most te teams are going to be beholden to their fan bases. So I, I think a lot about who's the fan base. Now the Steelers have this storied history with such a deep, deep roots. They can kind of, they can do, you know, whatever, I guess, uh, and the Rooney family. And, but um, as you long know, I as think of wins, Seattle. As long as you produce results. <laughs> there you go. The you know, which, which they, which they have, right. Uh, the, you know, they're interesting because that organization in general has been loyal to head coaches more than anyone else. You know, they stick with head coaches uh, that, you know, they deserve a lot of credit, but I wonder if Seattle, because of just, you know, think about their fan base, it, you know, it is diverse, a lot of Asian American population in the Northwest, but it's also sociopolitically, maybe a little more progressive region. Um, you know, maybe, and I, I'm just, I don't, not because I know anything about the ownership base, but just thinking about where they are located, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, part of me, and I'm probably too optimistic, um, it's interesting, like, you know, this is totally a homer pick, but the Arizona Cardinals, Michael Bidwell is an interesting one to me. I, I know that there's some things to critique, 
But he's the organization. I know that they're under fire for firing Steve Wilkes after one year, but they also hired Steve Wilkes, and they also had, you know, under Arians, they had some progressive, you know, kind of things like we talked about with Jen Welcher. And who was their uh, man, Welcher? I'm going to need your organizational memory. Their longtime general manager, Rod Graves. Rod Graves. Um. So I don't, and I know that there's you. We can just easily point to critiquing some things in terms of their history, but Michael Bidwell is interesting in that he's he's not a totally progressive person in in the political uh, my idea of it, but he does seem to be willing to. He does not seem to be off put, or you know, he seems like willing to do things in terms of hiring. I don't know what I'm trying to say that aren't necessarily driven by. Um, cronyism or, or the good old boy network, but he's also not necessarily on the leading edge of progressiveness, but like, I don't but know. It, I, by I the NFL, that's a standard of a victory, right? Like in the <laughs> NFL, that is a progressive point. And your point right. about the, the Seahawks reminds me of another example of this that I'd forgotten about. Yeah. Uh, Cause they, they haven't had a, a, a black head coach. Well, now they have a black general manager, but the Atlanta Falcons, Mm-hmm. were a team I think of on this because when Arthur Blank bought the team and I think it was either 1999 or 2000, he mm-hmm. essentially said, we want to market our team to black customers in the Atlanta that's, area, which was, and that's a, a good point. I live yeah. in Georgia. So I, I actually, and I, so I, you know, I, I and it, so go up to I'm two and a half hours from Atlanta, but I, at least I know a little bit about the region. And that's a team I didn't think of, but, the demographics of their fan base, you know, and and what what the the cultural place Atlanta holds with with the black community, it's like kind of the modern, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, what's the, I, I believe like, the phrase that's been used before is the black mecca, essentially. Okay, that's, there we go. Called Atlanta. <laughs> I think of it. Well, think about like the place culturally that Harlem had, especially in the, like the 20th century, and cultural a vibrant cultural center of black culture right and atlanta has a similar sort of ethos i feel like definitely today. you know the cardinals the reason why I, I agree with joseph i think michael bidwell would be prone to um you know having both actually a, a black gm who i think that uh, adrian wilson is probably going to be the next GM in Arizona if he doesn't get plucked away by someone else. Um, and then having a black head coach. I mean, the the Wilson-Flores ticket was being promoted in with the Giants. Um, I could see that coming to Arizona. I mean, the way they're setting Cliff Kingsbury up to fail. I mean, we just know it's coming. I mean, everything that they're doing is counterproductive for Cliff. They've now made a mess out of the quarterback situation, which was the one thing that, you know, gave everyone such hope, um, you know, and, and Cliff is being saddled with a really incompetent defensive coordinator um, who can't, cannot take away teams uh, bread and butter plays or show that he even has a plan to do that and has the worst soft zones in the league. I mean, down the stretch this year, every game was a, was a scenario of, Tyler under constant pressure having to throw into sticky man coverage into the tightest of windows. And then the other quarterback having a luxury game in a tuxedo throwing to wide open receivers in huge gaping holes in some of the worst zones, um, you know, one would even find in Pop Warner. I mean, it was just a debacle 
um, to watch the disparity. And to think that Kyler was frustrated by that, you know he was. And I wouldn't blame him for being frustrated with that. That was an incompetent defense um, down the stretch that did nothing to help out the offense, except in Dallas. It played a good game against Dallas. But that was about it. Um, And, uh, you know, but here's the thing is that – you know, it wouldn't surprise me if in a year's time, since, you know, Cliff's probably going to be hung out to dry, um, that, you know, a uh, Wilson-Flores ticket in Arizona could be very much um, a thing. Or uh, Wilson with someone else, maybe Byron Leftwich, since they have the Leftwich connection. And here's the final point to that, is why it fits in Arizona is that, you know, which comes full circle in our conversation is, Blackhead coaches tend to get jobs with desperate, beleaguered franchises that, you know, have nobody else, you know, the top coaches don't want to even interview for. I mean, I thought the it good was news just with Arizona almost this comical that, they have the quarterback. that the year before, I mean, they couldn't even get a second interview with Mike Munchak, who Steve Kime wanted. <laughs> I mean, Mike Munchak would turn down an NFL head coaching job because it was the Cardinals to remain an offensive line coach um, and wouldn't even take a second area. I mean, you would think, it, you know, a long timer and a great football player as he was in his day would at least want to listen. And he w- didn't even want to make the trip and just said no. I mean, so when you're talking about when you're at the bottom of the food chain in terms of, uh, you know, uh, getting co- serious coaches interested in your jobs, you know, what do those jobs go to? Guys that are think that this may be their one chance. And it just really sticks in my craw that a good coach like Steve Wilkes, and yes, he's a good coach. He had no, zero chance the way things were set up in Arizona. Absolutely zero chance. And I'm writing about that today, and we'll post it on Revenge of the Birds. Um, you know, he, you know, he was defamed by this whole thing. He will never, ever get another chance as a head coaching. And he probably knew it when he signed on in Arizona that, you know, this was probably the only job he was ever offer he was going to get. And so he took it. And what he didn't know, the worst thing that was going against him was time. And if you don't have time to build anything, I mean, it's just going to come tumbling down. And I, I just think it's disgraceful how that whole thing was handled. But I think, too, as Joseph has a good point, I mean, the Bidwills are, have shown that they're, they've shown diversity in their hiring practices. I think they want to give their jobs to the best qualified people. And, um, you know, so I think it's entirely possible that, you know, and Bidwill was very fond of Rod Graves and said it was the toughest decision he ever had to make. And so, yeah, I mean, I think the Cardinals would be right in there. The only thing that worries me, and Joseph said this very um, astutely, is the, you know, the demographics. I'm not sure Arizona is still a state yet where, you know, an all-black, you know, like front office um, and head coach scenario is attractive to the native Arizonans. What do you think, Joseph? I think... I think that the the demographics aren't going to have a problem, wouldn't have necessarily a visceral reaction to there being a black head coach, black general manager. I think that they, it's, it's sort of in that, and this is like, 
I think except the, you know except for the folks who are deeply deeply like like overtly and egregiously racist most of the folks that have sort of this newer kind of intolerance whatever you want to call it they just don't like they're not well how can I say it? if it were Brian Flores with an active lawsuit that's where the problem is because then it's going to stoke those feelings of resentment about the kind of the anti the backlash to black lives matter a lot of the folks who have had backlash to Black Lives Matter don't think of themselves as actively racist and maybe even believe in sort of this kind of colorblind approach or whatever, which has its problems. They're, they just, when they see what they think of as someone who's making a big deal about race, that's when they get bristled up. So mm -hmm. I, I, I think the demographics in Arizona wouldn't like be up in arms or, or, or whatever if Arizona had a black head coach and a black general manager as such – you know, um, but if they had, if it, if they perceived that that those hirings were in some way connected to what they, uh, an issue that they had a backlash in, whether it be, uh, again, someone like Brian Flores with an active, uh, you know, uh, uh, lawsuit against the accusing the league of being racist, they would, you know, I think some of the fan base would be annoyed by that, or if they had a coach or general manager who was perceived to have been hired as a quote-unquote diversity hire under the Rooney rule, but was perceived to be not the most qualified, right? right. So it, I think that the, the pushback or the bristling would be if it were perceived as being connected to one of those issues, but not necessarily as such just because it was a, a black combination of GM and head coach. Um, I do want to throw an, something out there that I, I'd like for us to talk about, and I don't know if you already kind of were thinking of, were intending to, but there's this more nuanced piece of this that has to do with, you know, like we're, a lot of what we're talking about is overtly racist sort of pro, you know, practices and hiring. But I think there's this deeper, more nuanced institutionally racist component to this that has to do with uh, a lack of opportunities in the pipeline, because kind of some of the armor that a lot of people who are opposed to diversity have put on themselves to is, well, you know, we just believe let's hire the best person and, you know, whoever, it doesn't matter what race they are, you know, the sort of, you know, colorblind approach, quote unquote. And they just say, well, no, we just need to hire the best person. If that person's black, that's great. If that person's white, so be it. Uh, but what, what's missing in that is the opportunity structures to earn the experience to work, put in the time, get the experience to make yourself a candidate, right? A, a viable candidate for GM or head coaching means that you need those entry level experiences. And, and mm -hmm. this is a problem that goes all the way down the pipeline where, and I will say, this is one of the reasons I do have some optimism for the more recent diversity program that awards draft picks to organizations that develop candidates instead of doing this sort of, you have to, you know, the, the Rooney rule is, is well intended, but I think there are some problematic things that the league has kind of just treated it as, you know, a tokenist sort of, I will, we'll, we'll just give an interview to someone, but they're not a legitimate candidate. Uh, but at least when you, when you give a motivation to organizations to foster someone like the Cardinals have with Adrian Wilson, for example, if he gets a head or a GM job somewhere else, the Cardinals are going to be rewarded for the investments they've made in giving him opportunities to earn that experience by getting, you know, draft picks. So I think this, the, a big part of this is it's not there in some cases, I think there are some racist processes in hiring, but I think part of it is also the opportunity structure is institutionally racist in terms of not, you know, that, that a lot of, uh, 
you know, a lot of the people who are getting the opportunities that get them to be the top candidates as head coaches or GMs, historically those those oh, those entry level opportunities and the investment in those folks, um, there's some issues there that I think need to be looked at. New sponsor alert, people. It's the good people over at Athletic Greens supporting this podcast. You can get 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens with one scoop a day of Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens has a special blend of ingredients that support your gut health, nervous system, immune system, boost your energy, as well as improving recovery times. You can reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. One scoop in a cup of water, and that's it. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D using the promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, at athleticgreens.com slash By the way, the link to that is in the description to this episode. Go to athleticgreens.com slash and use our promo code at checkout. Athletic Greens, take ownership of your health. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Can you think of anything better than peace of mind? I'm sure I could come up with a couple, but the point still stands. NordVPN is here to give you peace of mind while you are online. With all the threats that you face today on the internet, it's more important than ever to be sure you have the best VPN that you can get. You can get NordVPN on all of your computers and devices. With NordVPN's unlimited bandwidth, you never have to worry about a slow connection either. Plans start as low as $4 per month. And if you sign up today with the exclusive promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, you can get 70% off your NordVPN plan and one additional month free. NordVPN is risk-free for 30 days. You will get your money back no matter what. To make it a little easier, use the link in the description to this episode to go to nordvpn.com slash believe. So one of the things I find interesting about this is that the NFL is a closed-door industry. The NFL has to let you into Mm -hmm. the sport in order for you to have a space in there. It is an extremely high demand position and they have a finite amount of jobs and even entry level jobs that can be decided upon. And so because they don't have to worry about who they hire and they can kind of pick and choose who they give opportunities to, because there's a gigantic pool of candidates, the NFL can essentially decide for themselves who gets to be let into this industry. And overwhelmingly, that is people with some sort of connection to the NFL already. Is that how that ends up getting decided? Where Shanahan is the easiest one to point to, but one of the ones that's less difficult to view is, for example, Arthur Smith, who's the coach of the Atlanta Falcons. Where did he get his start? Well, his dad happens to be the partial owner of the Washington football team, and his entry-level job was at the school where his father donated millions of dollars as whatever you want to call a quality control coach, etc. So this brings up ideas of how do we open the industry where if left to their own devices, 
the power structures will hire people who look, think, and act similar to themselves, which overwhelmingly means white men, often white men of either children or nephews and nieces or some sort of connection to a nepotism hire within the sport. And like you said, they've, especially within the general manager ranks, this has started to change and people working in front offices of football teams. Um, but on the coaching levels, it's still overwhelmingly you are either you know someone and that's how you get your entry level job or you are a former player and that's how you get in. This works also in uh, the NBA where the NBA now has a generation of black nepotism as well that's kind of boiled up and in Major League Baseball where in the entire history of Major League Baseball there have been zero black managers who were not also former players. And so there is no real pipeline unless you have some sort of connection already in the sport because there are only so many positions that are available. It's the reason why when I bring up the idea that there should be women in positions of power in the NFL, there should be LGBTQ plus people, there should be religious minorities in positions of power. People look at me like I'm crazy because in the idealized world, there would be more opportunity for people who aren't already with connections to the NFL, which is overwhelmingly white men and very occasionally black men or Afro Latino men or the occasional uh, Latin American man who is getting these jobs and entry level positions in the first place. Well, that's, that was well said. And I, I'm just really, um, disgruntled about the whole draft pick thing i think it's it it's so counterintuitive um as an incentive i think it's it's really unfortunate um because if you're developing guys within your system shouldn't it be to keep them rather than mm-hmm. have incentive to get rid of them it's the same thing in compens- compensatory picks i mean who does that hurt it hurts free agents I mean, you know, teams are loath to sign free agents for fear of not getting compensatory picks. I mean, you know, these guys deserve a whole lot better. I mean, than than uh, squeezing these guys out in free agency because teams don't want to sign free agents because otherwise, if there wasn't the compensatory pick incentive, you know, there'd be signings left and right, and guys could reland on their feet and. You know, not be waiting till the you know training camp starts to sign on with some team that suddenly is needy at a position and have it assigned at the minimum. And you know, the whole dangling of of draft picks, I think, is an unfortunate and um, uh, counterintuitive uh, ploy on the part of the NFL. It's draft interesting because I think of, yeah. I should say I think you and I have a different opinion on this, Walter. That's interesting because. I think, um, I, I mean, I, I, and again, it's such a new program that maybe we will find that there's some problematic aspects of it. Uh, but for stars, let me just in general, sometimes things that are counterintuitive are actually sometimes the, the most effective things, not always. So, so that alone, it doesn't disqualify something. But um, to me, what's interesting though, is like the, the issue, one of the biggest issues is that teams haven't, maybe done enough to to proactively create development opportunities because you look at someone like Adrian Wilson, who again, I think is a great example of this former player came into the organization in the front office, 
at a very like in the scouting department and had a number of different odd jobs and really took, you know, and he took a lot of initiative to, to make the most of the opportunities that they were helping to afford him. And he worked hard, learned everything he could. Um, and he wasn't even on the radar as a general manager candidate until recently, but that came because he got that, those opportunities worked hard, was given different opportunities in the organization. And now, you know, so the, he worked hard, but the organization also, you know, invested in cre- you know creating some avenues for him to get those those experiences. And I do like the idea of uh, of the league saying, listen, if you are an organization that is going to uh, foster a culture and, and and an organization where where candidates of color can get those entry level jobs, get those experiences, work their way up, and develop into viable candidates for GMs. Or, or head coaches, uh, you're going to listen. You may, you know, you, you may lose that person, but you're going to get rewarded for creating that environment that creates a pipeline for jobs. Um, and yes, I get that. Um, the ideal thing would be for Adrian Wilson to be stick around and be the GM for Arizona. But I think if Arizona, you know, if they foster someone like Aaron or Adrian Wilson, they're like, Hey, we think this guy's going to be a great general manager. I think they would keep him. They, you know, if they have the opportunity, I don't think they're going to just let him go for a third round pick. If they think he's going to be that good, I think they'll they'll keep him because they feel he'll be worth more than a you know a compensatory pick in this regard. But I I don't know. I, I when I think about the kind of behavior that that drives for an organization that is okay if we create an environment that that. Where, where candidates of color can earn opportunities and become viable candidates for jobs, even if it's elsewhere, we're getting a pick. I think that drives, to me, what seems like a good organizational behavior. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, 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 I can understand that. I just think it's uh, – I, the whole compensatory pick thing is stuck in my cross since its conception – well, I the, think the it's thing why about players, not, your, your point about true. players makes sense. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, I think it's, it's yeah. not true to the league spirit of, of um, parity. Um, I think it tips the scales. I mean, uh, because who's profiting more off of the whole compensatory pick thing than the best teams? Because they can turn around and redraft and reload um, and choose not to re-sign players of their own Um or add new players if their roster is deep enough, and you know so they can keep re- 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 point, rebuilding. Um, is that you know there's a um, there's there's a chance for them to you know it always makes me crazy every draft to see the Patriots getting one or two third rounders every year uh, up until this year they finally spent in free agency, but. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why they've been able to sustain su- success, particularly when they changed the rule, Joseph, and and um, trading them, Little Rock. Of the, you can trade them; they yeah. they now have trade value, and you can move. It gives you maneuverability within the draft to make draft day deals and move up and down the boards. Of, you know, which the Patriots have done, and other teams have done it. Um, you know, I, I just think it gives you so much more flexibility. Um, and, you know, on the other end, see, here's the thing, too, which one quick thing that I, I thought of when you were making your case um, was that 
I think that because the league is more than 70% um, African-American or, you know, black players, there's always going to be a need for for black um, coaches. Um, I think that, you know, you see staffs now, there's pretty good diversity across the board and in almost all the staffs. It's just that the perception of who's – you know, head coach worthy down the road, it might be a little skewed. I mean, I still don't understand the Eric Bieniemy scenario. I mean, Kyle, let me kick this to you. Why do you think Eric Bieniemy hasn't gotten a head coaching job? So this is an interesting one for years for myself because I don't want to paint out Eric Bieniemy as being the face of black coaches can't get jobs in the NFL because he is one specific case. And I don't know what the case is on Eric B I've said for years, I don't know what makes a good head coach in the NFL, but the fact that other people are getting jobs ahead of Eric B makes me confused because I'm like, does anyone want to take a risk on this guy? Nobody wants to try it when we're hiring Nick Sirianni over, we're hiring multiple Indianapolis Colts, assistant coaches when you know the Indianapolis Colts have been fine but you know no one views Frank Reich as a elite hall of fame game changing coach the way we think of Andy Reid and you know multiple of their assistants are getting hired and assistants from the Ravens are getting hired and I I just surprised no one has wanted to take a chance on Eric Bieniemy because I know there were talks like Bieniemy wasn't going to have his contract renewed at the end of last season with the Chiefs so I don't know what the situation is with him specifically. He's more a byproduct of a system that doesn't give people like Eric Bieniemy fair shots at head coaching and at candidates. And ultimately, if people know who they want to hire from the get-go or the type of person they want to hire from the get-go, Bieniemy is on the list, which if you don't know, the list is there is a list that gets sent around teams of a candidate of black candidates that you can hire for Rudy to make sure you cover Rudy rule interviews. Jim Caldwell's on this list. Marvin Lewis is on this list. Eric B presumably on this list. They have a physical list that they send around. If you want to get your Rooney rule hire out of the way and then hire whoever your coach is going to be to the point with uh, compensatory picks, Um, When that was instituted about 15 years ago, it was a pro-management labor negotiation. It was something the NFL wanted. The NFLPA didn't want to concede, and it was negotiated collectively when it first came out. So that part is a pro-management type of thing with the compensatory pick. I think we need to differentiate, though, to some degree between the standard compensatory pick for losing, you know, the compensatory free agents, you know, players who are Mm -hmm. signed before the draft versus this new because new new sort of system they're both compensatory picks but i totally get the point that like listen it the the existence of compensatory picks under undermines the leverage of free agents because they're you know be they'll the te- a team now has this new in, new incentive to work that system like like new england has done like baltimore has done right. with you know in brilliant mm-hmm. fashion and right. it's a strategic approach and you know as someone who loves roster building I see that point, but I'm also like I, I, you know, I'm a person who wants my team to take advantage of that system because it's a smart way. To, 
yeah. build a roster. But I get it's, it. Like, it's anti-labor, in, but it's also the system. Is essentially right. So it, I get it that the system in itself undermines free agents' leverage because the, a team can let them walk and get a much cheaper player who may not be as good yet, right. but it's still – but when you look at, I still like the, the 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 new. At least again, we'll see. It needs to play out and see how it works out. But the 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 diversity hire process that involves compensatory picks for starters, that is a much longer pipeline to develop candidates and and have that system. And there's only so many head coaching and GM jobs available every year that I don't see this being a. In fact, I don't know. There's maybe just one, two teams that are going to get one of those picks this this go around, maybe. Um, so it's like, it's not, it, I just don't see it as being something that's going to be prevalent enough that it's going to flood the market with, with, you know, tons of these third round compensatory picks that are just totally, you know. And I think the value again of what it, the, the behavior it's potentially going to drive if it works in the way that, they're hoping it will. And I, I hope it will, I think is worth the offset of a few extra compensatory picks. Um, but I, I hear your point about that, Walter. I just, I think this is going to be on a smaller scale and I think it's, it's a big enough problem that it's worth trying to do that. Now, if there's a better solution, I'm open to hearing it. I'm always for, Hey, if there's a better solution, tell me about it. You know, I just, yeah. this is well, such a hard thing that what is the better solution? And I, I don't know what that is. Well, I got a question for you. Yeah. How likely would it be if you're the team hiring the minority and you have to give up your third round pick to hire the black coach? Think that would that ever would happen? Work as a, that would work as an anti-incentive. That, that would, would make be the opposite. less that, likely. And that's hire. an answer, answer in of itself, right? Here's the other thing is with compensatory picks. Why? I mean, I think they'd be better it would be better off if, if all p- compensatory picks were seventh rounders. You know, you're basically creating an eighth round. I mean, because then, you know, okay, so you get com- compensated for not, you know, having lost a little bit in free agency, but you still get draft picks, but it doesn't skew the balance of I mean, those th- to get a top 100 pick in the draft when you're a team that just – it to the championship game of your conference i mean it's just so wrong to me i I mean that's that's third round pick is a huge those are value and that's i think that's a separate issue that's a that's an nfl competitive balance issue right right Right. we're, we're talking more about the you know and we've been talking more about the systemic issues of race um i do though i you know I guess if you could recalibrate the whole balance, then maybe it doesn't, you know, then a seventh round pick. I just, I don't know if a seventh round pick is enough of an incentive for the kinds, maybe it is, but for the kinds of change just we're talking about that the league needs to make for hiring. Well, um, you know, know. it's, I think the reason why the compensatory picks are so highly coveted is that you can get third and fourth and fifth rounders. And, uh, Mm -hmm. but let me skip ahead to one other point. Um, the common denominator of that getting back to the brain trust, right? So the two black, the, the most obvious black offensive coordinators who did not get jobs, even in light of the, uh, Brian Flores lawsuit are Byron Leftwich 
and Eric Bieniemy. Instead, like a Kevin O'Connell gets a job instead. Why does O'Connell get the job instead of Leftwich and or Bieniemy? And here's my answer. My, the obvious answer to me is that um, you know Bieniemy and Leftwich are being perceived as puppets for um, Andy Reid and Bruce Arians. That you know they're not the real play callers. They're not the real designers. You know they're just kind of you know placeholders for offensive coordinator jobs that basically are being they're being commanded by their um, and led by their brain trust head coaches who run their systems and have been in the league for that long. Whereas, you know, I mean, the, the lure to a Kevin O'Connell is that, oh, he's been with McVay. And even though O'Connell hasn't called plays or anything, but, oh, he knows McVay's system and, you know, the whole McVay and Shanahan. I mean, Shanahan's guys are getting head coaching jobs too. I mean, the fact that, you know, they're with the whiz kids, um, the young, bright, white head coaches is an allure to teams rather than picking um, black uh, coordinators who are in the shadows of kind of alpha male head coaches. I think um, this, I mean, I think you have to take this a layer back, but it's still on the same lines. I think there has been developed this 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 perception of McVeigh um, and Shanahan as well. You know, as these these two these wunderkinds, these new bright, <laughs> brilliant kids, and that and when you look at though, like there has been some success. Their coaching tree, the, the McVeigh coaching tree has actually had quite a bit of success so far. Yeah. Right, objectively speaking. Right. So I think there is this perception around the league that this is, you know, that you, this is a, this is a coaching tree you want to tap into because, you know, you've got LaFleur, you, you know, you've got, uh, you know, now Zach Taylor and that this is clearly, and objectively speaking, I think it is, does seem to be that McVeigh is doing a job finding, and developing some some coaches unfortunately like while i think there is some objective truth that there that this is a promising coaching tree there there's at the same time there there's you know part of the fact that it, he is perceived that way certainly does come back to some of those stereotypes about the brilliant white coach you know right. the, the white mastermind and you you know you still have to wonder is there a coach of color who who could have become that had they had the right opportunity, but they have not, you know? Yeah. And um, think, think of this one quick thing um, is that as NFL players who had the more, you know, had more stardom in the NFL, the enemy left, which were Kevin O'Connell. <laughs> this is the other part of <laughs> you know? this conversation. I mean, is... left, which was a star yeah. quarterback. I mean, if anyone should know about quarterbacking in the NFL, it, it's Leftwich. And Biennemi was a star running back, you know, who um, likes to coach running quarterbacks. So, and has know. been coaching for like 15 years in different places. Yeah. Where O'Connell yeah. was a one-year one year offensive I mean, coordinator. These backup quarterbacks, Frank Reich is his poster boy. These backup quarterbacks turn, you know, brainchilds. I mean, yeah, I mean, they're qualified, and I don't want to take away from them. I mean, they've worked hard, and they deserve 
their opportunities, but it's just the perception we're talking about that. Yeah. Well, I think to call Leftwich a star quarterback would be a stretch, but he, but, but here's the thing that I think there is something that backup quarterbacks or marginal NFL quarterbacks actually often do make good coaches, you know, and that's what I see left, which is, I mean, he, yeah, he was a star for a while, but he was a backup in Pittsburgh, I think for a number of years, Afterwards, but like, you know, yeah. left, which left, which fits the profile in terms of experience of someone you would expect to be a, a good coach, potentially a quarterback who understands the game as a quarterback right. who maybe wasn't successful enough to be a, a, at least my view, a star, but has been around enough and was a backup and, and, holding that clipboard, watching the game through, you know, through a different lens and, and becoming the Kubiak sort of, you know, back, backup who becomes a good coach. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. And this plays well, into the same thing you were talking about, Joe, about who gets the jobs into the pipeline, right? right. Like when you're a backup quarterback who, you know, in 16 to 17 of the cases is never expecting to play a single snap unless Mm -hmm. something goes horrifically wrong to the starting quarterback, then you are essentially an extra coach at that point because you're in all the meetings, you're doing all of the work involved with game prep and learning a scheme and, you know, doing all of that, but then you're not playing. So at that point, what are you and where do you get that level of expertise, right? And this plays into why a predominant number of backup quarterbacks like like regular quarterbacks for 40 years were also predominantly white. And so yeah. it was an easy step into hiring backup quarterbacks as assistant coaches, then as quarterback coaches, then as offensive coordinators, and then as head coaches. And then once that well of white backup quarterbacks began to dry up, the new model of Bill Belichick came into the picture, which was, we bring people from liberal arts colleges into our system and make them NFL head coaches. And Brian Flores is included in this mix too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Boston College, not quite a liberal arts school, but kind of similar type of vibe as the places Belichick was getting some of those people from. And McVeigh is kind of another example of that, where you look at Zach Taylor, who I was amazed during the college football playoff. They said, when Desmond Ritter, who was the quarterback for Cincinnati, was first recruited to Cincinnati, Zach Taylor was his offensive coordinator, and now he's coaching in the Super Bowl. Um, Shane Waldron being the offensive coordinator with the Seahawks, he was essentially Jared Goff's babysitter during the Super Bowl season, and now he's offensive coordinator there. O'Connell getting a job, and Lafleur being one of the steps at the beginning. Now he's kind of branched off with his own tree as he's had some success, but he was originally a McVeigh guy too. And so all of that kind of works into who's getting what jobs. And, you know, people look at, at Eric B and look at Byron Leftwich and say, you are lucky to have that job. You're not really doing the work that you're just getting the job because you're behind the guy. Mm-hmm. When it when it's another coach who's maybe white and behind Sean McVay, it's look at how much you look at how much you've learned and absorbed from this coach, even though they aren't calling the plays either. Sean McVay is also calling the plays for the Los Angeles Rams. So that answers your question, ultimately, Walter, about um, the, what Eric Bieniemy and Byron Leftwich aren't doing that other coaches are, because you are correct that essentially 
they are viewed as you are just standing behind the guy. You're not actually qualified to be a head coach. You're just the guy standing behind the guy when it comes to them. Right. But not the case when it comes to a rotating door of white faces behind Sean McVeigh. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because, yeah. like, when you think about the guys who come up the pipeline, like, you know, and maybe another way to frame what you're saying, Kyle, is. The, the and and let me set this up because it, it gets to it builds towards a point but um the, with with what you what you're saying is essentially these other people are party to the success but not responsible for the success is how it's being perceived hey you're part of the you've kind of lucked into being part of this and you're you're learning under these coaches their system is what's successful but you're just part of it but the odd thing is like in, in in a similar vein, these these kind of bright coaches coming out of the McVeigh tree, like I don't think anyone's looking at those coaches and saying they are why the McVeigh system is successful. That they are <laughs> the, people are looking at these coaches and saying these are young coaches who have benefited by being under the tutelage of or being steeped in the McVeigh system. They have learned. They have, you know, they have sat at McVeigh's feet, and now they have acquired whatever requisite brilliance you know right <laughs> that he mm -hmm. he has bestowed upon them and now they'll be head coaches so like in neither case are these assistants viewed as they are the reason these teams are successful let's pluck them away they're viewed as these folks have sat at the feet of the coaches they might have enough of might have rubbed off on them <laughs> And exactly. they were, you know, and sure, they were smart to be hired in the first place. They had, they hired them because they had, you know, capabilities in the first place. But that they're both. So the point I'm making is in both cases, the perception is these are people, these are not the reason these organizations have been successful. These are players who have come through that. Yet in one case, that's a worthwhile risk, and in the or a player that we want to a coach we want to tap into, and in the other case, it's an excuse for not hiring them. Right. Mm -hmm. And by the way, Walter, this to your point about Andy Reid. Before you pick up, you are correct <coughs> that we used to do this with Andy Reid as well. It worked for Doug Peterson of being the guy behind Andy Reid. It got Matt Nagy a job. It got John Harbaugh a job. It got right. Ron Rivera a job. Right. It got Sean McDermott a job. It's just. The line stopped at Biennemi about four years ago, ironically, when the Chiefs started having their most successful run of football. Right. Yep. Yep. Well, uh, there is one other topic we can touch on here, which is, you know, playing into similar type of ideas here real quick, which is um, NFL owners creating a system without some measure of accountability, which is permeating right now because Dan Snyder is under congressional investigation and part of the Brian Flores lawsuit is Stephen Ross. Um, potentially, you know, there's talks that he's at risk of losing his team, which I don't necessarily think that that's the case for the offering $100,000 per loss to Brian Flores. Um, recently, Jerry Richardson had his team not necessarily taken away, but quietly they moved Jerry Richardson out when a lot of Me Too stuff came up around him. The Dallas Cowboys settlement of $2.3 million came to light this weekend over um, a essentially the fixer for Jerry Jones getting in trouble for um, – 
just I want to make sure I have it correct, getting in trouble for taking video and photos of cheerleaders in their locker room during an event six years ago, and then him retiring once ESPN started asking questions. So this idea that NFL owners don't have to be accountable to hiring practices or really any problematic actions is more just kind of a matter of power structures in the NFL. I'm not really sure if there's an easy answer solution here, but I did just kind of want to float this topic out and see if you had anything on it, either Joe or Walter. I mean, let me start by saying, you know, powerful people always have historically, you know, buffered themselves from, from, you know, consequences or accountability. That's, that's, you know, that's, that's one of the unstated, uh, perks of being powerful, so to speak, is that you can hire someone to take the fall for you. You, you know, if you have enough power and money, and you're you potentially are at risk, you know, of getting in trouble from for some of your questionable behavior. Uh, you throw some of that money at someone who is less powerful and say, "Hey, you're going to take the fall for this, but we're going to take care of you," you know, kind of a thing, um, and other forms of that. So that you know, that's something that's happened forever. Um, when you, and you know, I always, you know, being a sociologist, I look like to look at the structural organizational, uh, pieces of things and how those, what kinds of behaviors those drive and facilitate. And when you look at the league, right, you know, you, you have Roger Goodell who his, you know, he answers to the owners. They are his employer essentially. Right. And, um, so, you know, he, he will say he is accountable to the league. He is, he is protecting the shield. His, his, he would say his primary motivation is the, the good of the league. And, you know, someone who's going to try to, you know, who's going to try to frame that in more of a, 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 a positive, optimistic way is going to say, well, you know, uh, making sure the league has high levels of integrity is good for the players, good for the fans. That So protecting the shield is about protecting integrity, but what it really means though is while there may be some truth that if I want to not be too cynical, um, he, his big part of his job is to protect the owners, right. And the ownership groups and that, that in itself has some nuance because if you have an owner who is so out of line in their conduct and publicly out of line and to the point where it is now bad press for the whole league, yes, uh, rooting out that one bad owner, if it's bad enough, is in the interest of the rest of the owners, right? The, the, if there's one ownership group that has gone so off the rails that they are a risk to the viability or to the or to the profitability of the league, yes, the other 31 ownership groups are going to say it's going to be in their interest to get that person out. But until it reaches that tipping point, where that conduct is so publicly shaming and such a black mark on the league that the other owners say, we need that person out of our club until it reaches that tipping point. The impetus for Roger Goodell is going to be to protect each and every one of those ownership groups from criticism, from ridicule, from public shaming. So like, he he's they're not going to oust an owner until it gets bad enough that everyone says we can't have the, this person being part of our club is ruining is tainting the whole club right so it's this weird thing where he's going to protect protect deflect shield buffer protect deflect until it gets the conduct behind the scenes is so bad that he has to completely flip and we need to get that person out right 
Um, so that's this weird dynamic, but make no mistake, he his he is going to be a defender and a buffer and a protector and a cover up until it's bad enough that everyone says get rid of him. And so that that is that is his that is his motivation, and that is I think what the organizational structure is gonna drive. So you're gonna see ownership groups protected until it's no longer viable to protect them. Yeah, and I think that the whole Brian Flores being bribed hundred thousand dollars to tank games by Stephen Ross is the epitome of how certain coaches are being set up to fail um, and are totally um, manipulated by owners. Um, and you know, if, if the truth comes out there, and I think it might. I think that from an ethical standpoint, I don't know how the league could support Stephen Ross. You can't protect the shield and allow for that kind of hypocrisy um, uh, and wrongdoing. So, you know, it's, it's been a slow, you know, the, the peels of the onion are starting to come off with the whole Daniel Snyder thing, the John Gruden being exposed um, for his racist tropes um, and attitudes. This is, I think, good for the league. Um, unfortunately, at the expense of those who I, probably deserve it, but you know, it's been long overdue that uh, attitudes need to change, modus operandi need to change, um, hiring policies need to change, um, and perspectives need to be changed in a league that's uh, so immensely popular. Um, now it's, it's, uh, boy, oh boy, what a ride this season has been. Um, I can't think of a more exciting season than my 66 uh, or 67 now. I'm 67. <laughs> Holy cow. Um, years <laughs> on the planet. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the NFL has never been more popular. The way that they've trudged through the pandemic has keep, kept people really, um, glued in on the games and the, and the excitement and, you know, the game is evolving, but I think it's really cool that the game is, is trying to live up to societal standards and, and um, ethics that are important. I mean, people in the past used to think, well, it's football. You can get away, you know, you can be dirty. You can, you know, because it's football, you know, it's cutthroat and you can, yeah, yeah. But you know what? Uh, at the end of the day, it's like anything. These are about relationships and with Joseph being a professor of sociology. I mean, he, you know, it's great to get his perspectives because, you know, in a sociological sense, the NFL is evolving. And um, there's certain purgings that, like, our society needs to do with the taking down of, you know, um, Confederate statues and, and Confederate flags. I mean, this is something that doesn't happen overnight. But, um, you know, as a society, are we evolving to become a more perfect union? And I think the NFL is trying to do that. Um, I was not happy to hear that Goodell is up for an extension now and it looks like he's going to get it. I'm not a big fan. 
I think there be a, there are better ambassadors for the sport out there um, and more deserving. But and like Joseph said, he's you know Goodell is in good favor with the owners, and that's why they want to want to have him. But Goodell is also negotiating a television contract. And he is, you know, he is, and he, you know, but he's got to protect the shield. Um, and which is why, by the way, to protect the shield, this is why he is aggressively fighting not just the the news media, but also Congress in not releasing the Dan Snyder investigation findings when they released all the findings for you know less. Create less detrimental scandals such as Bounty Gate and Spygate and Deflate Gate. He is a fighting very aggressively to not let anyone see the findings of the Dan Snyder investigation and releasing the 750,000 emails, the findings from doing that evaluation, because protecting the shield in this case might mean still protecting Dan Snyder even as he's kind of, or as the Washington football team is put on autopilot and his wife is representing the team at owners meetings and things of those sorts, they really don't want us to see what is in whatever they investigated. And so in that case, protecting the shield is doing what clearly seems to be the wrong moral choice (laughs) of not releasing an ethical choice of not telling us all of the terrible things that Dan Snyder was letting run through his organization, but protecting the shield means protecting Dan Snyder. Cause he is at this point, one thirty second of the shield. And I guess for whatever their reasons may be, they don't want to have all the dirty laundry come to light on Dan Snyder because of what that might expose for other owners as well. As we kind of saw with John Gruden like this has the potential to ruin a lot of careers and ruin a lot of people's reputations because of everything that was going on around Washington well what's encouraging to me is that now you know I mean um, no one seemingly is no longer above the law and um, you know so often I never will never forget seeing an ABC special where they did this clever thing of posing this, this uh, imaginary uh, Mideastern Shaw who uh, came over to America and asked uh, 10 different law firms um, if they could help him launder money and store it away in the, in the, uh, you know, at foreign banks. And nine out of the ten law firms said they would help him. And only one was, <laughs> was ethical and said, "No, that's not something we want to, um, uh, you know, um, take on for ethical reasons." And one of the lawyers that immediately, the head of a law firm, who immediately said, "Yes, we'll take care of you," tells this actor, who he thinks is a real Shaw. Um, that BYU came to the right place because in America, we lawyers make the laws and we make them so that they protect us. So you're going to be fine. That is just the way it's been, man. Um, and that, that facade is starting to crumble. Um, that these, you know, the, the aristocracy can hide behind the law. Um, is starting to crumble apart, and I can't be more thrilled 
um, for America that this is the case. Joe, any other final thoughts there? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, and I think a key to, and that's that's an interesting point you make, Walter. And you know, a key to that is, and this is this is the tough part because power will always try to shield itself and always try to change those in power will try to change the rules to benefit themselves. Right. And that, so like, even if it starts to be dismantled, like you're talking about it, the, the wall is continually being built. Right. So the people in power continually rebuilding or building new walls and buffers. And the, here's the tough part. And almost, almost the, the sort of tragic part of this, is to dismantle that you need whistleblowers and people, you know, as they say, speak truth to power. Right. People who, 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 and the people um, who are the ones who dismantle this stuff or bring attention to these kinds of things often end up being the collateral damage, right? They're the people who lose their careers. I know, right? Yeah. Who, you know, I mean, and listen, I, I know that some people, when you talk about Colin Kaepernick, they'll say, well, he made millions of dollars. How is he a victim? I get that. But at the same time, like this is a guy who should, should have been a, he was, he was one, he is better than some of the starting quarterbacks that have played over the last, you know, five to seven years. At worst, he should have been a top backup in the NFL, not an on a roster. And at, at best, he should have been a starter somewhere. Um, but he, he's been out of the league. Right. Um, so he missed out on a lot more money. And yeah, I get it. There's a lot of people who don't have much. So that that seems like uh, it's not that big of a tragedy. But uh, Brian Flores should have been a head coach right now, but he's not. He's an, he's an assistant in a good situation, but he is an assistant. And but there are people outside of these circles in everyday life, people who are who are, um, you know, whistleblower like you think. Uh, you know, and I know this is going to be polarizing, but for Blazy Ford, I mean, she came, she came forward yes. to, you know, kind of to, to criticize, you know, kind of come stand against it, kind of a good yep. old boy protection hedge and had death threats. And she knew she would be facing that. And, and every day there are people who, who speak up, stand up, try to expose the hedge of protection that powerful people create around them and society benefits from people doing that because then we see these things and we start to, and eventually when there's enough awareness, we start to dismantle some of these things. Right. But all along the way, the path is littered with the collateral damage of people who stood up and got trampled. That's right. And and the sad thing is eventually sometimes people in power finally face some consequences after decades of having been protected and then the people who were the victims um, or the people who stood up to bring attention to that often end up being tragic tales of people who, you know, who were victims and who uh, faced consequences that they didn't deserve to face. Um, and that, that, that's the tough part. And as a society, I think we need to do a better job of rallying around and, and you know, protecting and even lauding the people who stand up and bring attention to these kinds right. of things. Right. Mm-hmm. And this is really difficult because Brian Flores put it out there in his lawsuit where he's like, yeah, I'm totally prepared for no one to stand behind me and getting blackballed from the NFL. I totally recognize this is a possibility because right. people, I mean, we as a society didn't protect Colin Kaepernick well at all that even in the NFL, even if it's not the player's job in that way, like, no one stood behind him 
with any real meaningful power and it made it easy to just cut him out of the equation and right. it's kind it, it's the same thing happens uh, as again sports reflect society is the whole point of joe's you know <laughs> joe study joe studying <laughs> as a professor talks about how society reflects sports in a way like sports are a version of that he also happens to have a very popular youtube channel that you can check out with the link in this episode of course (laughs) as he incorporates sports as well but this is kind of the whole point is that we don't rally around people who are trying to drive social change and this stuff is really messy right like the compensatory pick thing is essentially a bribe when you strip it all away but it's a very valuable bribe and so that's how you create the the circumstances and situations that you want is that the NFL has infinite resources that, you know, as soon as the, all the concussion stuff happened 15 years ago, no more head hits in the NFL and we're going to protect quarterbacks and Tom Brady tore his ACL. And that's not going to happen anymore because it's good for the bottom line. Like when they have the incentive, they can change pretty much anything with $70 billion and infinite connections it's just whether or not this is something that they want to change the same way, you know, bringing forth concerns about Brett Kavanaugh during the Senate hearing is exactly the same point of, is this something that we want to change? Because ultimately Brett Kavanaugh did get accepted onto the Supreme court, despite, you know, Christine Blasey Ford trying to bring this concern to light. So we have the resources to push change faster than we think we do. It's just a matter of whether or not there is a will to continue to make those changes. And that's something that, you know, the powers that be in the NFL will ultimately decide when it comes to some of these issues, just as the powers that be in society will decide what is worthy of change and what is not. And the best that people without power can do is try and put pressure on the power by, you know, whether it be withholding their support, withholding their money. I know I was upset seeing that Washington football team gives you new jerseys and they're the top five selling jerseys on Fanatics for a week. I was disappointed by that. But that's part of how you keep the systems of power somewhat accountable, like Walter is talking about. It's, you can keep people accountable by putting pressure on them and having journalists help bring some of that truth to power ever so slightly. Well, it's an amazing thing. Confluence the last couple of years of the NFL with hit at the same time by black lives matter and the me too movement. So, uh, here we go. They are (laughs) products of, I think it's great. And I think it's going to, you know, help our country evolve. I mean, the, National Football League, I mean, what Major League Baseball is doing right now is just, like, so ridiculously stupid. I mean, they're so far behind football now in terms of national excitement because uh, you just get so, you know, steeped in the in the greed of it all um, and don't understand the fan base. The NFL does it, does works hard to understand the fan base. you got to give them credit for that. And, uh, wow, what a year and... You know, great things. It looks like great things are ahead, and they ought to expose Snyder for everything he did. Um, you know, and that'll come out. I have no doubt in my mind that it that it won't. Um, I mean, I, I that was, it will. Um, Excuse me. We're out of time here. I, one of the topics I had listed down to talk about was Deshaun Watson, and we didn't end up getting to it. But 
at the time of recording, because there won't be another podcast episode here till Thursday, a judge ruled Monday that Deshaun Watson can face questions under oath in at least nine of the 22 civil cases filed. So it looks like this is going to get dragged out longer than I thought it would, which means I'll maybe do a full podcast on that coming up later. But yeah, that's, um, gonna be, yeah. that's just great. That, that's like big news that has come in apparently this morning on that. So at the time yeah. we're recording this, that's a case there. Um, I know, I know Joe had to head out at eight o'clock, so I had or eight o'clock my time. So um, I will give him the last word on this one. Is there anything else you wanted to add, Joe? <laughs> Man, uh, you know, I don't <laughs> Sorry I don't to know. drop that we dead fish on you real quick. Apologies yeah. for dropping that dead fish yeah. on you. Yeah. No, <laughs> Deshaun Watson will face questions under oath. Joe, your thoughts. <laughs> your thoughts. Right. I mean, that's a tough one because, you know. No, you don't have I, to yeah, We don't have to get one. into Deshaun Watson. That's, yeah. but, no, it's, no. A, it's, a, it's one that requires more of a nuanced conversation on another right. show for sure. But um, more so about the stuff we talked about. I realized after the right dead fish right in your lap there at the end <laughs> right gee thanks kyle i appreciate you too buddy um no listen these are tough conversations and nuance is the key here and i i think um if there's one thing i would want to just kind of throw out there is that we need to make sure we understand and i teach after i teach race ethnicity i'm teaching a course on it right now and we need to understand the difference between what's called interpersonal racism and institutional racism. And when, when like I had someone in, in one of, you know, in, in social media that follows my, my YouTube channel kind of was asking with the whole Brian Flores thing, like, you know, well, you know, I don't think it's racism involved. There's a lot of reasons a coach could get fired and that I don't think it was racism. And, and I think people misunderstand that Brian's Flores is not necessarily in his lawsuit saying that he got fired because the owner didn't like him because he's black. I don't, I mean, maybe that's part of his claim, but that's not what this necessarily is always about. It's not interpersonal racism is that racism when someone doesn't like someone because of their race, right. Or, or discriminates against them. And his lawsuit is not saying that every time a black person is fired from a coach or GM job or doesn't get a job, it's because the person didn't hire them because of their race. What he's saying is that the processes are institutionally racist in that the processes allow the perpetuation of white candidates to have advantages, right, through the structures. And that's that's a nuanced thing to look at. And I think people sometimes just conflate the, that interpersonal racism with the institutional both can be involved, but it's much more nuanced. And we, I think we've done a reasonable job of trying to get at some of those things. It has to do with those pipelines. It has to do with the processes. And it's not all just about that flat out. Someone doesn't like someone because of the race. Both of these are involved and we have to kind of understand how the differences and the nuances of both. And I think that's an important thing to understand when you're looking at these issues. Bravo, professor. <laughs> Thank you. You get my Thank vote. You. You're down in the, in the, you know, in the, uh, um, in the state of Georgia doing your thing, man. Kudos. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's definitely a, it's definitely a place to study and learn about race. That's for sure. Awesome.
Georgia is at a cross section of all of this stuff. So you are absolutely correct there. It it is I mean, at least in the, since the election last year, it has very much been at the cross section of everything that's happening here. It's a, again a reflection of society at large. So um, I appreciate it, Joe and Walter, also coming in here and doing a really two hours worth of podcast on some big picture topics. I suppose so. I, I appreciate you guys giving the time here because this was a very enjoyable podcast for myself. Well, thank, thank you. you. I appreciate the invite. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Little rock. Keep doing of your course. thing out on the left coast there. My man, the left coast. That's right. Yep. I guess it is technically the left coast also. Um, yeah. Thanks again. Okay, pal. Take care. Thanks.